I know I can see people in the audience dying to ask questions. Before I open up the floor, though, to our participants here, I'd like to call on our two reactors. Uh, first will be Bob Oakley, who is the law librarian at Georgetown University in Washington. Uh, and near him, Jim Besick, a law professor here at Columbia. So, Bob. Thanks, Winston. It's always exciting, as you can tell, to listen to Siva talk. He, uh, he has those pithy stories, and he has a way of telling them that um, – get people interested in the topic and make them want to do something about it. So uh, thank you very much, Siva, for uh, your presentation here today, but also for the work you've done on these issues uh, in the public fora as well. Uh, that being the case, it's a little hard for me to follow and comment, but what I thought I'd do is offer a few comments, in essence, by way of footnotes to uh, his paper and, and a, a few general comments. and. Uh, thoughts and expansions on it. Um, in the paper, Siva said that this revolution really began in the 1990s. I think some of the things he talked about here today suggest the point that I want to make, that some of these seeds for this revolution really began earlier. And I thought I'd start with the 1970s. Um, if well, some of you will remember last time I last group I was with, nobody remembered some of these at <laughs> this period. So I guess I can't say that anymore. Um, uh, some of you will remember that in the 1970s we were in the midst of negotiating the Copyright Act of 1976, and that wasn't such an easy task. Now we've been living with it for um, many many years, and we kind of all accept it and so on, but. It was tough then, too, and the negotiations were hard. Uh, the Register of Copyright at the time was Barbara Ringer. And uh, Barbara, it was, um, she was a great broker of, of the deal. And she made a lot of the compromises come together that ultimately ended up uh, uh, in the Copyright Act. But one of the things that I th always um, remember Barbara saying was that the Copyright Act of 1976 was an author protection statute. Now, I think that's an interesting way to think about the Copyright Act of 1976 because the way things have evolved over the last, well, since the 90s anyway, it doesn't look so much like author protection anymore. It looks like we're protecting large commercial interests. But at least at the time, the way the Register of Copyright saw that act was uh, as author protection. I think that's uh, interesting. Now, one of the things that made those negotiations so difficult back in the 70s was that there were uh, a few inventions that had um, really begun to take off that were ha happening at exactly the same time. I forgot about the cassette recorder. Boy, are you right about that. But uh, let me rem remind you of two. The photocopier wasn't as ubiquitous then as it is now. And uh, it was just getting placed in libraries and just becoming self-service uh, and that kind of thing. And nobody really knew what the uh, uh, copyright implications of the photocopier uh, would be. Uh, these, these were all unknown questions. Uh, the other one, of course, is the videotape recorder. Uh, and we've heard a lot about uh, the Betamax case here. One of the things that I thought I would share with you that probably almost no one knows is that Barbara Ringer 
went out to celebrate the passage of the Copyright Act by buying a Sony Betamax <laughs> machine. <laughs> and she told the group that I was part of uh, that she thought it was probably illegal, but it was great technology and she had to have it. So she, <laughs> she went out and bought it. Well, these two inventions, of course, spawned a couple of important cases. Um, uh, again, the last group that I was with did not remember the Williams and Wilkins case, but there's at least one person in the room here who does, and it was an important case for looking at the quali about issues related to photocopying and issues of paper-to-paper um, paper -paper, uh, kinds of copying. This is in the analog, not digital world, obviously. But Williams and Wilkins dealt with uh, the topic of interlibrary lending, interlibrary photocopying by the National Library of Medicine. And it went through three different levels of review. First, there was an administrative law judge who ruled, I can't remember which way it went. Anyway, and then there was a lower federal court and a higher federal court. Each time it flipped, and each time it flipped by one vote. So we were essentially tied up by the time it went to the Supreme Court. Uh, it did go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed four to four, uh, with one abstention, the federal appellate court, which had decided in favor of the National Library of Medicine. And therefore, uh, by uh, essentially the vote of one judge at that appellate level, uh, the National Library of Medicine was able to continue delivering photocopies to its customers. That was an extremely important decision in terms of, of libraries, but also in terms of sort of the acceptance of the photocopier and what it did in American society. Obviously, uh, there was also uh, the Sony Betamax case, and we're still dealing with those issues uh, now with the uh, Grokster case, but it had a similar effect. Uh, after the Copyright Act was passed and after these two cases were decided, then as someone earlier today said, things were pretty quiet through the 1980s. Not a, not a lot was happening. But these technologies were going forward. And there began to be a much greater acceptance in society of the answers that had been given to the questions that had originally been there when these technologies were invented. Photocopying was pretty well accepted, and uh, obviously uh, videotaping was accepted. So Siva's article goes on to say that something changed in the, in the 1990s, and obviously it did. Uh, I think we, uh, we've heard about those here today, uh, the invention of PC and digital technology, importantly the development of the internet, and I think probably the most fundamental one that a couple of people have referred to is this notion of how we view copyright. Barbara Ringer described it as an author protection statute. But by the 1990s, the view of this was that was an international trade issue. It was no longer seen as author protection it was seen as fundamental to the American balance of trade and, uh, and so on. And with that shift, that important shift that occurred in the early 1990s, we, we saw a completely different approach uh, to these issues. 
I'd suggest, too, and um, this may be something that's more up Siva's line than mine, but I think there's, there's also there's been a, a sort of a shift in cultural attitude about copying uh, in general. If you look at young people today and downloading music off the Internet, they don't think of it the way other people might think of it. And they certainly don't think, they think of it maybe more the way I thought about my cassette player when I was taping off the air uh, music to listen to, which not only did I do uh, when I was a young person uh, doing rock and roll, but I continued taping uh, the, <coughs> the uh, Metropolitan Opera uh, <laughs> as I got a little older and more sophisticated in my musical tastes. Um, so... Uh, Steve has pointed out the impact of the DMCA, and I want to echo one other thing that's occur has come up here today, is that it's not only the technology that's at issue here, um, but it's the issue of licensing uh, and what we are all agreeing to when we click on those uh, ubiquitous licenses that occur every time we load a piece of uh, software. Uh, Peter this morning mentioned that we ought to start resisting those, and I think he's absolutely right. I thought I'd point out that there is an, an interesting body of law uh, in Europe that we can learn from. So this, too, echoes Peter's uh, comments. It turns out that, and this, this is relatively little known and little studied in the United States, but it turns out that the EU has a directive on unfair contract terms. And um, that directive has been implemented in, in most of the member states of Europe in different ways, in different ways. But it provides a way of looking at contracts and contract terms that's quite different from the way we look at them here in the United States. So, for example, last summer there was a case in France where the French court refused to enforce a clause in the AOL contract agreement that required the lawsuit to be brought in Virginia. And the French court said, no, that we will not enforce that. The, the uh, case may be brought in France, uh, must be brought in France. Um, so if we, are to, if we learn more from this EU directive and the way it's being implemented in the member states, I think we might begin to develop some models uh, that we might use in our country uh, to resist some of these license agreements. So, yes, we have a revolution, um, but one of the things that concerns me uh, in, in all that Siva says is that we haven't yet reached the policymakers, and my uh, concern about that is H.R. 107, now H.R. 1201, uh, which to me it just seemed so obvious that uh, all the students all over the country would get on board. They'd write their congresspeople, and of course that would become law. How could it not become law? Well, you know, we didn't even get very many co-sponsors uh, at the end of the day for that bill. So somehow, even though these issues are there and the revolution is there, we're not yet reaching the policymakers. I do find hopeful uh, the effort going on in Geneva with the development of this new Access to Knowledge Treaty, I don't know whether it has a lot of chance of, of uh, passing, but it's changing the vocabulary, it's changing the dynamic, and it's um, causing new discussions about these issues at different levels. So I'm uh, very hopeful about that. 
So it seems to me the directions we need to go on are trying to get more to the policy level, um, getting more support for H.R. 1201, engaging in the litigation where necessary, and supporting the development of this Access to Knowledge Treaty. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, I don't know many of you, so I just wanted to take a minute and just talk about my background. Um, first of all, I really love libraries. I always have. My first paying job was in a library, and I couldn't believe someone would actually pay me to work in a library. Although I have to tell you honestly, I use that term loosely because they were paying me a dollar and a quarter an hour. Uh, they didn't have to pay me minimum wage because I wasn't 18 yet. But I hung on because after six months I was going to get a dollar 35 an hour. But then Nixon instituted his wage price freeze and my wages were frozen at $1.25 an hour. I couldn't believe he could possibly mean me, but he did, uh, and I was stuck. Um, but, I, but I stuck it out, and I worked in libraries all through uh, high school and also college. I went on to law school, and I'm now in academia. I'm the executive director of the Kernigan Center for Law, Media, and the Arts here at Columbia. Although I didn't come to that position until I had practiced as a lawyer for many years. And so, in the course of my practice, I have worked with and for libraries, with and for publishers, and with and for computer software companies. And that's the perspective that I approach these issues with. Having said that, I have to say it's very fashionable to disparage copyright, and I think it would be constructive and helpful to try to achieve a more balanced perspective than we have had so far at this conference. Fundamentally, copyright is about promoting the progress of science and useful arts, and we haven't heard too much discussion of that. It's designed to promote the public good, but it's easy to fall into an intellectual trap along the following lines. Copyright's for the public good. I'm the public, or I serve the public. It's good for me, and therefore, copyright must support what I want to do. I think it's more complicated than that. As we consider early in the 21st century how to promote the progress of science, we have to recognize that in reality, copying really is cheaper and easier than it's ever been before. Authors and publishers have legitimate fears. There is greater ability to infringe, and some people, and I emphasize some, are taking advantage of that. Often in library and educational contexts, I find that people rationalize the exceptions that they have or would like to have one of two ways. One is an implicit assumption that there are uses that pay the freight. Uh, educational use is fine because copyright owners still make money in other markets. But it depends what the work is. Sometimes there are those other markets and sometimes there aren't. If it's the New York Times, they'll probably continue to get along. Uh, but if it's a work that's created all or uh, at least in part for the educational market, then I think it deserves a little closer scrutiny. Um, the other way to address uh, authors' concerns, or at least that I find they're often addressed, is by saying they need new business models. But I'm always, you know, I always want to ask the next question, well, what business models are these exactly? And that part's always really vague. Um, and I'll come back to that point in a minute. I, I'm concerned that the debate has become extremely polarized and copyright owners have been demonized because it's easier to make them the bad guys if you just hold up Disney or the Recording Industry Association. Uh, you know, you get a laugh, you know, 
and then your audience is with you, they're behind you. But there are lots of individual authors. There are lots of individual artists. There are small publishers, there are university presses out there, and they have real concerns. And I think we need a dialogue and not a revolution or a prayer meeting. Um, so rather than take to the ramparts to denounce the tyranny of copyright, I think it more, might be more useful to do two things. First, try to better understand and identify the genuine concerns of authors, artists, and publishers, and they do have some, and I think that any solution that we come up with should respond to them. And secondly, we should try to focus on the specific needs of libraries and where the laws have created problems. I mean, there's plenty of work to do there, it seems to me. Interlibrary loan, electronic reserves, copying for preservation. I think we could all make a list. I hope that that will be the subject of tomorrow's discussions rather than just broad general attacks on fair use or copyright generally. And speaking of fair use, I want to address that just a little bit. I, I find claims that fair use has contracted in the past several years, which I encounter frequently, to be very surprising. From my own perspective, and I realize this is personal, I think fair use has expanded significantly. When I was in school, if a book was unreserved, you went and you read it in the library. Uh, if you wanted your own copy, you bought it. Uh, you might, if it was a few pages, you might copy it, but the quality and the nuisance factor made copying more than a few pages pretty impractical. And in history and social science classes, we bought a whole bunch of books. Um, now the sheer number of complete copies that we all own or have on our hard drives is absolutely staggering, unless I'm alone in this. But I have an office full of copies. I have a hard drive full of copies. Um, I, I think that uh, the concept that it can be fair use to systematically make complete copies of a copyrighted work, not to mention extra copies to share, is really a relatively recent one, and I don't think we should lose sight of that. Uh, I went back yesterday. I keep an old copy of Nimmer on my shelf. Now, Nimmer, as you may know, is considered, or at least in the past, has been considered to be the preeminent authority on copyright law. This is a 30-year-old copy of Nimmer, and this is what it said, and I quote, there may be certain very limited situations wherein copying even of an entire work for a different functional purpose may be regarded as fair use. Now, I'm not saying things used to be better because I don't believe that, or that they shouldn't be different in the future because I don't believe that either. I'm only saying that things have changed, and I think it's useful to recognize that. Now, let me turn briefly to 1201, the law everybody loves to hate. There's not time to address it here in detail, but I think it deserves more than sound bites. But I will say that I think it's addressed to real, non-frivolous concerns. It was designed to protect and encourage dissemination of works in digital form and to encourage conditional access models. I happen to think this is a worthwhile goal. I like the convenience of online access to certain things, I like the option of having limited access for a lower price. There's a lot of stuff that, frankly, once is enough. Um, once is too much for some. Um, <laughs> if we repeal 1201, what exactly is Plan B? Some of our speakers would say, and I know they would say this because I've heard them say it, that authors and copyright owners don't really need it anyway. It's not really helping their business. But authors and copyright owners apparently think it is, and I don't think any of us should presume to know their business better than they do. Um, which is why I think it might be instructive to learn from them. Uh, is compulsory licensing plan B? Well, that carries a whole host of problems. How much do we have to pay? What do we levy on? How do you divide the money up fairly without using it all up? And perhaps most um, you know, the important is the overarching question of how do you do all this fairly? 
you know, I might spend two hours downloading really boring, excuse me, Mary, documents from the Copyright Office website, <laughs> and somebody else might spend two hours downloading music. I don't know why I should have to subsidize that. I really don't. Um, so we come back to the ever-popular new business models. But new business models will probably rely on technological protections. This is true of iTunes, which is the poster child of new business models. And dare I say it in this company, the future of libraries may also rely on technological protections. They're part of the Teach Act. They were part of the quid pro quo. They may be part of the answer to how we balance important questions about digital preservation of copyrighted materials and digital dissemination of copyrighted materials. Finally, a word about international concerns. I was very glad to hear that laws of other countries might be instructive, and I certainly support that view. But of course, you have to look at the whole context. Many countries have a private use privilege, but it's often coupled with equitable remuneration. There's a quid pro quo. The bottom line is there isn't a free lunch, and I think we're fooling ourselves if we think there is a free lunch. We have to pay for copyrighted works, or we are going to affect the incentive to create. You can't have it all, at least you can't have it all for free. I think these are really difficult issues, and I, have to, I think we have to consider them in a serious way, uh, with less rhetoric and with more in, input from people who are outside this room. I don't think this should be, uh, to paraphrase Shakespeare, about killing all the copyright lawyers. Uh, and finally, I, I just have to say in closing, and this is why I spent some time talking about my own perspective, that to me, the talk of war is very troubling, and I think it should be very troubling to anybody who loves libraries and education and copyright. I wonder, Asif, would you like to speak before yes, I open the floor to other questions? Yeah. Um, in response to, to uh, June's points, uh, which are very well taken and, and I think understood rather well in this room. Um, one word that I, I, I gave you a whole lot of words uh, in, these, in these 52 pages, um, and I think a few of them go beyond sound bites, uh, and at least my footnotes drive you to some real substance in my argument. Uh, and I apologize if I've, if I've been too pithy. Um, one word that you won't find in that paper is balance. Uh, I actually think that talk of balance and even though it's in the title of this conference, is not useful. There's no such thing as balance. Nobody knows what balance means. There is no one scale for measuring how copyright works. Uh, you can expand or contract fair use. You can expand or contract the term of copyright. You can do both or neither, and you still don't know what balance is, and my version of balance might not be Jack Valenti's version of balance. I can guarantee you it's not. So bringing up balance is kind of a conversation ender. It doesn't really, no one knows what it is. Uh, either copyright works or it doesn't work. And we have a test for whether copyright works. It's in the Constitution. It's whether it promotes the useful arts and sciences. Whether it promotes. And one of the things that a whole pile of scholarship in the last 20 years has shown us is that it is not promoting optimally. It is, in fact, taxing in some very serious ways. It is perhaps promoting the distribution of previously made copyrighted works in new containers, but it's not necessarily promoting the creation of new copyrighted works to the extent that it could. The reason we know this is we've talked to a lot of artists. We've talked to a lot of writers who have said, and, and we can, the work Peter Yossi's done over the last year is the best of these examples. 
who will say unequivocally that the current climate, going beyond the code of the law, the current climate of copyright is so onerous that we can't do our job. And when I say we, I mean we, because I am one of those individual authors who lives on copyright. I have not written for free since I was 20 years old. I've been making my living producing copyrighted works ever since. Not only that, I've published with university presses and have had deep and long discussions with the people who run university presses. And you know what they say? They say, while they're worried about the leakage in the system because of digital distribution, they're just as worried that their authors cannot use the photographs that they want to use in their accounts of 20th century American history. They're worried that they cannot quote poems to the extent that they feel they must to make meaning out of what's going on. They are paying a price on the supply side. The publishers know it. They're not of one mind about copyright any more than the rest of us are. We all know that we all have a variety of orientations toward the copyright system. Now we should focus on the specific needs of libraries. In my case, I can't speak to the specific needs of libraries better than just about everybody else in this room, so that certainly wasn't my charge. Now, uh, June made a very important point that fair use has expanded in recent years. She is absolutely correct about this. If you look at the big important fair use cases, uh, going back to Campbell versus Acuff Rose, right? It just seems to be getting richer and richer, wider and wider. We seem to be able to do more and more if you can afford a lawyer to go to the Court of Appeals. So fair use, for those of us who can afford lawyers and go to Courts of Appeals, could not be stronger actually right now. I think uh, uh, we can be very bullish about that. But fair use doesn't take care of all of those individual authors. It certainly doesn't care, take care of my graduate students who want to use an advertisement from 1938 and are told by their publishers, you can't, and when my graduate student who's read my book says, what about fair use, the publisher says, we don't do fair use, and that's what they hear. Fair use doesn't mean anything to my graduate student. So we have a problem. Copyright is not working optimally. Now, as far as Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, has it worked? Is there any evidence that there is anything distributed in electronic means that we can't get? Last night on my way home from this conference, I walked through the, the Times Square subway station and saw three vendors of DVDs laying out their wares. They had all the currently run movies out there, and the DMCA doesn't stop them at all. Right now, you can open up my laptop and go to any peer-to-peer -peer network and find just about everything you want. What is the DMCA doing to stop that? iTunes DRM is a joke, and that's why it's successful, because nobody really believes that their DRM gets in the middle. I just read a news story today saying that uh, a young person in uh, uh, northern Europe somewhere, I don't remember where, uh, cracked the most recent iTunes DRM 21 days after it was released. It's not doing anything to stop the distribution of the music sold on iTunes. It's not doing anything. It is, however, messing with the people in this room. It is, however, creating a chilling effect among sec uh, security researchers and encryption researchers. We know that for a fact. It's been documented. It is beyond pithy sentences. It is beyond talking points. It is on paper. It is in court. It is the truth. 
There are some people doing very important work, paying a very heavy price for the recklessness of the current copyright regime. What is Plan B, June asks. Plan B is copyright, real copyright. Copyright circa 1997, or I would prefer 1975. But Plan B is real copyright. We all believe in copyright. Jack Valenti doesn't. Jack Valenti gave up on copyright in the 1990s. So does Bruce Lehman. He doesn't believe in copyright. He doesn't believe in fair use. He believes in technological protection measures, which is not copyright. Paracopyright, a nice phrase, one I use a lot, doesn't even capture how uncopyrighted it is. Because copyright is a limited right with deep user's rights embedded in it throughout the case law for nearly 300 years. That is copyright in its totality. And technological protection measures do not do justice to the richness and success that is the copyright system. Thanks. All right, ready for questions? Adam? Yeah, hi. Uh, question particularly for June, but I'd welcome anybody else's comments on it. Um, my understanding, um, although I did duck out of the room at points, is that nobody's argued uh, for the complete repeal of 1201, at least in terms of endorsing existing legislation. Uh, I'd be curious to know whether the panel thinks that the so-called fair use preservation clause in 1201, uh, given the rest of that statute's uh, language, has any practical meaning. And if not, uh, what do the panelists think we ought to do about it? Um, secondly, with respect to, June, your questions regarding compulsory licenses and your comments about compulsory licenses as to whether or not that might be an architecture for Plan B, um, I think those are all exactly the right questions, and I, I'll revert to the trenches we talked about before as an advocate for peer-to-peer. -peer, the sole radical agenda of the organization I represent is that we think that it might be useful to have a formal discussion of the possible partial utility of collective licensing. That is our radical agenda. That has been foreclosed, a non-starter, dead on arrival within policy circles in Washington. The question is, should it be, is that a mistake on policymakers' part to not even address the questions that you so well articulated? Thanks. Well, I would never put anything off the table. I think it should be addressed. I, my point is that I think it should be addressed more broadly than, I mean, that particular point, but our points here generally than, than uh, we're addressing them here. Um, going back to 1201, um, I think that there have been proposed amendments to 1201 that essentially do repeal it. I, I think we're fooling ourselves if we say anything else. I, they, they, you know. um, now, I guess the new bill does not have the, um, uh, point, uh, the uh, provision about uh, free distribution of mechanisms. But certainly last year's uh, uh, bill would have repealed 1201 in large part. I, I think it's a pipe dream to say that you can uh, both distribute mechanisms and have a fair use exception and say that 1201 is effective. Now, you know, that's a debate that we can have about whether it's good or bad, but we shouldn't pretend that we're not repealing it when we are. Fred? Uh, 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 bookend hard questions, I hope, for, uh, for both Siva and for June, who's come both all your comments I, I thought were very interesting. For Siva, I, uh, I don't know if you were here for P Professor Tushnet's uh, paper, but uh, much of her paper is about singing the praises or at least the equality of so-called non-transformative fair uses as co-equal with transformative fair uses. And my hard question for you, I noticed you 
used the move that many who are advocates of fair use do, which is to conflate the power of new technologies with the power of transformation. And I don't mean at all to denigrate that. But what do you say about all of the rest of us? I don't make mashups myself, and yet I enjoy very much the ability to, I think as Professor Tushnet pointed out, just enjoy the work. Is that not in itself an important piece of our copyright tradition? And from the point of view of the libraries, many of whose patrons at least are not imminently or always interested in transformation, should those uses be any less important in the scale uh, than the mashup artists that you discuss? Um, and for June, my question on the issue of DRM, I hear this rhetorical question posed often. If DRM is so unsuccessful at supporting new business models and the like, why is it that content owners remain so enthusiastic about technical protection measures? Doesn't that prove that it is useful uh, and should be preserved? My response question to that is, what do you say, let's imagine for a moment that DRM is, as Siva points out, actually doing no good at addressing the digital piracy concerns. Let's also assume that it is, however, doing a great deal of good at impeding competition. And we've already seen in the DVD context and in the iPod contexts ways in which technical protection measures are used not to stop piracy, but instead to impede competition in the marketplace. Is it not conceivable that the enthusiasm for TPMs that we see from content owners is in fact coming from a different route than the route that we were all told in 1998, this desire to quell piracy and support new business models, uh, that rationale seems to be looking a little threadbare. But I think some other rationales uh, for their support might be worth investigating. And I wonder if you, if you have a thought on that issue. Okay, I'll be quick. Um, I, uh, I, until I had read Rebecca's paper, I hadn't thought through her, her point at all. It's, it's, it's fresh and interesting to me, and I, I, I need to think more about it. Uh, my, my sort of um, uh, instant reaction is that transformative uses are more important, not just retort, not just as debaters' points, but because that's the very purpose of copyright, to, to create new things, to build upon what came before. That is where the action is in copyright. And so uh, what, what you might be valorizing uh, in other forms, in non-transformative forms, you might as well call infringement in a different context. And I'm not comfortable endorsing infringement. I'm comfortable living in a world full of it. I don't think it's the biggest problem in the world, but it's not something as a believer in copyright, I want to say, right on, let's ride that horse to a better information environment. Um, I think by focusing on and privileging the new, uh, we are being true to the good things about copyright. I could be wrong. Um, I guess I would start by saying that I don't think anybody ever thought DRM would be foolproof or that people would be able to get around it. The theory was always that it would be somewhat of a speed bump. Um, I, I have to say I don't feel comfortable being the representative of, you know, the Motion Picture Association here either. So I don't know what they would say to that. I think they probably would say that. Uh, but I can't really respond to your conspiracy theory, which I've heard in the past, and I, you know, I, I suppose that's true. I certainly have heard people say that they find DRM to be useful. 
I suppose it's true that this is the perpetration of the conspiracy theory. I have no reason to believe that that is the case. You know, as I said, I'm not comfortable being their advocate. I'm not their advocate. I'm trying to fill a vacuum here, which I think is a real one. I think there are people who could do this far more effectively than I can. I would point out that no drunk drivers have ever been stopped by a speed bump, and ambulance drivers really hate them because they need to do important driving, and they can't seem to be able to drive their big trucks over them very well. But we've heard some rejection of certain slogans, but we still need some way of understanding what's going on here. I agree. Balance is like a Rorschach test. You can see in it what you will. Promoting the progress of science and the useful art. Again, you can see in it what you will. There are just a lot of different ways that we've articulated these copyright issues, but so many of them are subject to debate, and so many of them are subject to flaws. How about something else? And that is one size does not fit all. And I think to a great extent, that's what we're experiencing, that we have one size that's being pushed on us, and it's being pushed harder. That as Congress continues to tinker with the law, that one size is pushing out further. More works are automatically protected. It's pushing out further. It's going to be protected for eternity or nearly so. Eternity plus 70 years, I think it is now. And that more rights are going to be protected. And that if there are limits or other exceptions, Section 110, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that they're going to be defined in very, very narrow ways that make their utility dubious at best. And we can say the same thing about Section 1201, that there's a one size fits all mentality, and it's being advocated even more aggressively by the lawmakers. And my apologies, I don't have an instant metaphor to replace it with, but let's go back to the war metaphor. The only battleground that's left is fair use. It's the only battleground that's designed to be available to us to fight out our differences. And we need to be advocates, whatever side you're on. If I were Jack Valenti, I'd be saying the same thing, only with a different frame of mind, facing the other direction. But still, we need to fight in this arena of fair use, because one size does not fit all for the rich variety of needs of users and the rich variety of needs of owners as well. So we need to open this issue up as we're trying to do today. I generally agree with you, but fair use and putting all of your chips on fair use actually implies one size fits all once you go outside the borders of the United States, where fair use doesn't exist. Although, happy to read that Australia is considering going fair dealing plus fair use. At least they're having hearings about it. And Canada, the big case last year, the CCH case, seemed to imply that users' rights go beyond the enumerated fair dealing. So there's a way that fair use can enter a global conversation, but it's not quite there yet. And I would echo Fred's concern. Fred last night said that if he had to become an international copyright expert, he would pull all his hair out. Well, I've already done that, and I don't know that much about international copyright, but I do know that you have to use a different vocabulary once you cross the border. One of the things that's 
interesting about a lot of this is that it's a, a moving target. And it's certainly true that if you look back at a 30-year-old copy of Nimmer, you're going to find some different statements uh, on this than you would find uh, probably today. For example, um, uh, probably about 30 years ago, uh, the representatives of the AAP, when the uh, law was being passed, said there's no way we could ever agree that a photocopy uh, of a complete work, meaning an article, uh, would ever be fair use. Uh, well, I think we see a different look at that today. And for example, in the arguments in the Grokster case, um, many of us were surprised to hear the admission uh, that copying a complete CD for purposes of putting it on, that you own, for purposes of moving it to a, uh, an iPod was okay. And they conceded that and said, they even said right there at the court that it's up on our website as something that we permit. Well, that's a complete uh, and relatively dramatic shift uh, in the way of looking at copying. Also, I mentioned earlier, I think there's um, some changes in societal attitudes that have gone on. I don't think we fully understand those yet. But if, if you talk to young people um, um, about Napster and Grokster and that kind of thing, they think about these issues kind of differently. And they look at it, if, if, you, if you query them about uh, some of these issues, they'll often say, well, we don't, we agree with supporting the artists. We don't want to take anything away from the artists. But they don't see that as what's, be, what's happening here. Uh, and it reminds me of um, Barbara Ringer's original comment about this being an author protection. And we've kind of gotten away from that. And I think Siva's right. Maybe if we got to sort of back to a pre-1998 view of copyright, we might come closer to where, where we ought to be. June? Yeah, I just wanted to, I, I mean, that was precisely my point. Fair use has changed. It has Absolutely. evolved. It, Absolutely. You know, it, it's just a fact. Um, two comments I wanted to make in response to an early point about the one-size-fits-all. Uh, that, that's the point I tried to make about educational works, too. The one-size-fits-all thing goes both ways. And we have to be careful what it is we're making fair use of and how it's going to affect the market. Uh, this isn't just kind of a situational ethics, touchy-feely balance, you know, promote science, uh, use, progress of science and useful arts kind of thing. There are some parameters, even in the fair use doctrine, one of which is the effect on the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. So when we're talking about multiple copies, verbatim copies, to share, that is a relevant consideration. How are you going to affect the market for the copyrighted work? And I think we have to stay tied to that uh, analysis. That is the appropriate analysis to make. It is the appropriate analysis to make, but it's also not working very well. Uh, Robert Putnam, government professor at Harvard, uh, in his, uh, his big government lecture this last semester, had a course packet that cost $500. Um, that means, I bet you, he's, the bookstore sold one of those. Uh, that is market failure. That's the Copyright Clearance Center making 500 bucks. <laughs> What's that? Rent-seeking, Rent exactly. I mean, it's, it's not how it's supposed to work. It's not optimal on either side. It's a big burden for the students. It's a hassle for the professor who has to get his course packet together three months ahead of time. And it's a huge joke for the students. It undermines any reasonable norms and trust they would have in the copyright system. And if copyright system seems to be working well, 
people will invest in it, believe in it, build on it, converse about it in responsible ways. If your first experience with the copyright system is a $500 course packet, uh, chances are you're not going to be that interested in holding up decent copyright norms. June, you want to respond to that? I, 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 I can see you. Say I'd love, you where, is that written up somewhere? Yeah, I saw it somewhere. I'll Could send you, it to you. Yeah, send it to me. I'd be very interested in that. Um, but anyway, I, that, that seems to me the kind of focused issue that would be very appropriate for this group's attention. We have time for one last question. Harold? Well, <coughs> perhaps more comment, in fact. Uh, I think this... Uh, what you said just before, one size fits all, is quite a good keyword because in my mind uh, the main problem we are facing here is that the rules are stretched to cover all the needs from research uh, libraries, activities to protect protecting in, uh, entertainment industry and I think this is one of the main problems. I mean we are pushed around by the music industry uh, and their needs and I think it might be advantageous for us to try to separate this, separate this according to uh, the content, the difference of content. When you think back 40 years ago, we had different rules, at least in Europe, for going for print and for uh, music recordings and television and radio broadcasts that were different rules because there were different media. But after the... the digital uh, convergence, sort of all, uh, sort of the, the most uh, protective seeking industry sort of wins the music industry and the film and entertainment industry wins, and so we are pushed. I mean, uh, the copying problem within research libraries is not a big problem, in fact. If you see my own library in, in Denmark, we have made statistics for 100,000 photocopies made out of journals we have in our holdings. 100,000 made in one year, only 5.7% were of the same article. Researchers and students' interests are very, very divided, very spread out. It's not a problem. The, the problem of copying is not a problem for research libraries or for research institutions at all. But we have to live with all the problems which the music industry poses upon us. So we should try to separate these things. That's my suggestion. I'm going to thank you for that comment, and it's my uh, great regret that I must close the session now, or we'll intrude too much on Jane's session as well. But please join me in thanking again Siva, Bob, and June. Thank you.